Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 27th, 2015, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yes, after a break, we are back with a Friday show. Uh, unfortunately, next week we'll also be without a Friday show because we'll be at, without a show on Friday or Thursday and maybe even Wednesday. I'm not sure yet what I can get out for you next week, but I have to go to California for Permaculture Voices. Hope to hear and see a lot of you guys out there at PV2. I'll be talking about building a plant propagation business, a nursery business. And there's going to be some amazing people out there. I think you can still get tickets if you're anywhere near the San Diego area. I mean, making travel reservations at this point might be tough, but if you're anywhere near that area, you might want to come if you haven't already set yourself up to come, if you can figure out how to make it happen. Um, I'll tell you what, guys. Uh, I have got a good show lined up for you today. It's a little shorter than normal, and... It's shorter than normal because it's snowing, and that really wouldn't normally affect things, but I'm getting a very late start. It's 1.40, and I'm just recording because my wife decided to take the car in today to get it serviced, and uh, I was to go get her, and we'd pick it up tomorrow, and it would just make it easier because had some warranty work to get done and everything, and <clears throat> uh, she didn't really check the weather, and I didn't really worry about it because I figured she would, and uh, the, the, the weather was awful. And I refused to let her drive back, so I left my truck at the Toyota dealership, waited for the vehicle to be done, and drove her home in her vehicle. Uh, so that took like an hour to drive home from a drive that's normally 20 minutes. That gives you an idea of what the roads are like. When the roads are like this, the survival strategy is one we didn't follow today. Stay the hell home. We're going to do that until it melts us out probably tomorrow afternoon. we got nowhere we need to be. we got plenty of food. we got plenty of preps. we got plenty of feed for the birds. Life is good, but there's a couple inches of global warming sitting out on my field right now. It's almost March in Texas, and it's snowing its ass off. I'm just saying, you figure it out from there. Anyway, before I get to your questions, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. I bet you there's snow where they're at. I really do, because they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho in the Sawtooth Mountain Range. Uh, it's a beautiful place. If you ever get a chance to, to get up that way, please do. The uh, the Sawtooth Wilderness in Idaho and the Bitterroots in Montana, they kind of, you know, one mirrors the other, one side and the other. God, beautiful place. Just beautiful. My heart always will have a little bit of it left in the Bitterroots of Montana. Um, but I'll tell you what, you don't have to go to the Sawtooth Wilderness to do business with SawTac. Go to their website, SawTac.com. You'll find all the stuff you need for that tactical lifestyle at SawTac. And you get a discount if you're a member of the Support Brigade. So do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Next up, the easiest company I could ever endorse, Backwoods Home Magazine. Became a subscriber in 1994. It's 2015. That's 21 years. Do I need to say more? They're an awesome, awesome, awesome publication. Incredibly rich, diverse information on homesteading and self-sufficiency and all of it with a libertarian flair. And, and you know, I'll tell you what. An issue of Backwoods Home Magazine is almost worth the price just for whatever Masada Yuba is going to write on firearms that month. His columns are fantastic. I don't give him enough uh, exposure over there. He's really, really fantastic. I had him on the show one time. What an amazing guy. What a great patriot. You guys should check out Backwoods Home because it's patriots like Mossad, like Dave, Dave Duffy, like Jackie Clay that make Backwoods Home something completely unique in the world of publications. They've been around a long time for a reason. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. 
Next up, do consider joining the member support brigade. It is how we pay the bills around here. Um, and it is uh, your way of deciding that you think the show's worth something. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. If you think the show's worth, you know, 10 cents an episode, join, because it's 18.3 is what the math comes out to. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all qualify for a discount. Email me with service discount TSPC in the subject line to learn more about the discount program. Just basically tell me what your service is about in one or two sentences, and I'll send you the discount code back. Again, do this before, not after you join. Remember, the Survival Podcast is free to download and free to listen to all the time. MSB is completely voluntary, but I do appreciate your support through it. If you think about the sh- listening to the show, and if you listen to it every day, 50 bucks a year is a, is a pretty good deal. And the discounts there will save you more than that if you're buying stuff in the preparedness, homesteading, self-sufficiency, gardening, permaculture space. We've built a program that pays for itself. And if you're military, you know, et cetera, it's an even better deal. All right, with that, let's look at the year that was the episode, 1528. The Spaniards called Galveston, Texas, the Island of Doom. Next one, Plague and another round of sweating sickness hits England. And then Henan, China is starving to death due to bad insurance. Man, these are all good ones today. They all have lessons for the prepper. Alex outdid himself today. I'm going to read Galveston, Texas one because I'm a Texan. And I didn't know that Galveston was ever called the Island of Doom. I mean, it's like the island of tourism now. It's like a really cool place where laid-back people hang out and, you know, elect people to Congress like Ron Paul. That's a island of doom. I guess they did send Dr. No to Congress for over 25 years. So maybe that'd be a doom for D.C., but, uh, yeah, island of doom, what's that all about? Well, it starts out when 80 Spaniards wash up on the shores of Galveston Island on makeshift rafts. Their ships had sunk in an earlier storm, and the commander of the expedition has gone to the bottom, leaving his second-in-command, Alvar Nuiz, to carry on. Nuiz names Galveston the Island of Doom. Winter is coming, and the Indians welcome them, but after the Indians come down with terrible bowel disease, the Spaniards are left out in the cold. By the next spring, only 15 men from the expedition will be left alive. <clears throat> Nunez uh, will take his men overland to find Mexico, but they will wander sometimes being captured and enslaved by the Indians. They won't see another Spaniard until 1536. <clears throat> by then, only four men will be left, two low-level noblemen called Hilgados, an African slave and Nunez himself. <clears throat> Despite his struggles with the Indians, Nunez uh, opposes enslaving the Indians probably because he understood slavery having been a slave himself. My take by Alex Shrugged. Galveston and Pelican Islands take the brunt of many storms. In 1900, a Category 4 hurricane struck Galveston without satellites and Doppler radar to run the resident, warn the residents. 6,000 and 12,000 people were killed, though they didn't die all at once. Disease claimed many who had insufficient shelter, food, and water. With more warning, they could have evacuated sooner. In 2008, Hurricane Ike did extensive damage to Galveston, Houston, and surrounding areas, but the death toll was less than 90. Texas was prepared, and Austin <clears throat> was the one of the designated evacuation centers. As part of the ROTC program, my son spent a lot of time organizing those refugees. He didn't understand why officials gave him an award for that work. But you have to accept those things as they come along. It encourages the others. You know, my take by Jack Spirit was totally different. Instead of bringing it to, you know, Ike and the 1900 hurricane, which was like the most devastating hurricane on record that ever hit the United States, um, it didn't just kill six to 12,000 people. 
Uh, think about the, the technology of the day that we don't really know. It was 6, 12, something like that, right? It, it destroyed the island. There was a lot there, and it destroyed everything. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good take by Alex. But my take is, this is why lone wolf survivalism is stupid. Okay, so the Native Americans here, they got along pretty well in the same place that this guy washed up on shore. And this guy wasn't exactly, you know, not a prepper type, not a survivalist type. These 80 guys that washed up on shore that were, you know, conquistadors basically, guys that, that, that set sail on these little boats all over the world, these guys, just to be honest, these guys were badasses. 80 of them hit the island. By the time, you know, they, they find others of their own kind, there's four left. And that's because, well, they made the Indians sick, and the Indians are like, yeah, you guys made us sick. Yeah, we were going to help you, but you know what? You guys are on your own. So if these 80 badasses, <laughs> in, in a part, and, and listen, I've been to Galveston, and uh, not just the tourist part, the island itself. And as you head south down the Texas coast through like Aransas Pass and Corpus Christi, there's a lot of resources there. There's a lot worse places to be stuck than in those areas. Uh, there's plenty to eat. Uh, there, you know, it's not fresh water on the beach, but there's plenty of places to come up with fresh water. And it rains a lot, it, it, you know, just to be blunt as well. Um, it gets kind of cold, but it doesn't get, you know, they're not sitting with two inches of global warming on the ground on the beach in Galveston today, not yet anyway. Um, it, it gets cold, but it's not like, you know, bitter, freezing, you know, Idaho, Montana cold. Um, and they ended up, before people left, they ended up being taken slaves. Um, and that the natives tend to do pretty well. Why? Because they have community. They have a tribe. They have something bigger than themselves. And that is how you survive. You survive with community. You survive with I, what I would call new tribalism. And that's my take by Jack Spierker. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack. This is Clinton in Northwest Ohio. Question about using a pressure canner. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we make big batches of soup, and uh, I'd love to can it, but we need to follow some of the recipe in the canning book. Not sure if I have to, you know, what, what all rules there are about canning and recipes. Uh, is it safe to just take that stuff and can it according to uh, whatever meat is in there, whatever size the jar is? You know, if there's, you know, beef or, or turkey or chicken, you just go for 90 minutes at, at whatever the, the pressure would be for canning just that kind of that meat and just apply that to whatever, uh, you know, the whole, the whole pot of soup or uh, how, how do you figure out what the safe, uh, how to safely can soup when you didn't follow the recipe? Thanks. Bye. I mean, yeah, to be uber safe, you're on the, the right track. You would just say, well, whatever's in the soup that would require the longest amount of, of uh, pressure canning would be what you would do. I mean, you can pressure can pure broth, I, I believe, for like 20, 25 minutes. Always follow a recipe, if you want to call it that, or a procedure when you're canning. Get your information from somewhere that's reliable. But basically, what you want to do with any soups is you can pints for about 60 minutes, and you do quarts for 75 uh, at 10 pounds, and that's at zero to a thousand feet. And uh, as you go as you go up in altitude, you want to increase your pressure, 
Um, generally, you want to, uh, to uh, can at about 15 pounds of pressure for the same duration at anything over a, a thousand feet, depending on your pressure canner. Some are like a dial gauge, and you can find a whole you know table that'll give you things like from a thousand to two thousand go to eleven pounds, and you know from two thousand to four thousand go to twelve, and 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 what have you. But as you go up in altitude, you need to reach higher pressures to reach the same level of temperature with the steam inside your canner. So always follow that. But generally, that's going to be just fine. Just about any soup that you make, sixty minutes, and any uh, uh, any uh, in a pint, and any uh, any soup that you make in a quart jar, seventy five minutes. Um, you also need to really think about like if you do like a, a really thick pureed thing, it's really not recommended that you do that, but. Truth be told, my grandmother did it all the time. So it, it's kind of up to you. There's my bigger caveat here is what you don't put in soup when you're doing this. Um, you can, you can include potatoes and I've done stew with potatoes and that's fine. But otherwise, really, you got to think about it this way. No starches, no milks, no thickeners, no, no flour. So like when I do stew, I always thicken my stew with flour because it, it, it makes it like a gravy instead of like a soup, right? Well, if you wanted to do stew instead of soup, let it stay thin like a soup, pressure can it, and then when you open a quart jar or a couple pint jars or whatever, mix a little flour and water together and thicken it then. No noodles, no rice. If you put noodles or rice in something and can it, they will explode into a mucky mess of nastiness and you will not want to eat it. So none of that stuff. Milk and any thickeners kind of do the same thing. You'll end up with pudding and not good pudding. Very nasty meat pudding. So none of those stuffs go in. If you're using beans or peas, they absolutely have to be cooked prior to canning. Um, if you're not using peas and beans, generally you could make like a chicken soup that you literally cook as you can it, except that the chicken should be cooked and it should be hot when you put it in the can. I always hot pack my cans, but The, the, the safe thing here is to always follow a procedure. So just because Joe Blow's you know, special vegetable soup uh, recipe for canning is not the exact recipe you followed, the canning procedure is pretty much the same, as long as you don't put any of those explosive, disgusting, you know, meat, gross, grease pudding things in there like rice or, or what have you. Um, other than that, it's, it's pretty much basic and simple. But again, I'm going to say it one more time. When you're canning, there's no room for error, okay? Especially when you can things like meats where you have to go to a pressure canner. <laughs> the danger here is something called botulism. And botulism toxin is highly likely not just to make you sick, but to kill you dead. It's extremely toxic. And the, the only way to ensure that you've killed it is to follow a recognized procedure. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the recipe exactly, but it has to be the procedure that you're given in duration, time, size, and find something analogous. Because chicken soup is chicken soup. You put parsley in yours, I didn't put it in mine, it's going to can the same way. Okay? Stew is going to be the same. You know, you got potatoes, you got carrots, you got celery, you got meat. Right, but never ever try to can raw meat. Meat should always be cooked prior to canning, and then go through the canning process. Which is one of the reasons I don't really like to can meat any more than I have to, because it's pretty well it's cooked as it could ever be once it's canned. It will it will never be a steak again. It is it is is pre made stew meat at best at that point. Anyway, let's take another call.
Hi, Jack. Jesse in Nevada. Hey, I'm uh, calling to get your input on providing professional services as an independent contractor. Uh, a little background. I've been helping and working with uh, families for about the past 10 years through agencies and other providers in the community, and I'm now breaking out into my own and starting a private practice. Uh, I've been negotiating the uh, quagmire that is the IRS and other entities as a self-employed person, and I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, being an independent contractor and how to sidestep problems and make this work for me. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate all that you do. Okay, look, I, I, the main, I'm going to give you some advice, but the main reason I'm answering this question is I get questions similar to this all the time about all types of things and do I do an LLC or an S-Corp and all. And I'm going to say some words that I need everybody to take to heart and understand that it's never going to be a different answer. Tax attorney, that's number one, CPA. Those are the two professionals that you discuss things like how you set up your business, how you manage your business, how you file your taxes, what's deductible and not deductible, what corporate structure do you use, okay? What's legal and what's illegal, what types of insurance should you be carrying, etc. Tax attorney, not Jack. CPA, not Jack. Every state has different issues to contend with. Every industry has different issues to contend with. Every local municipality can have different issues to contend with. Okay, Your life is not the same as my life. What I'm comfortable with in insuring myself versus you could be totally different if we were doing the same thing on the same street in the same town in America because of our individual net worths behind the scene things, how other things are set up. I can never tell you what to do in those regards because I don't know enough about you and I am not a qualified professional that can give you that kind of advice. So, dun-dun-dun, tax attorney, certified public accountant. Those are the two professionals that every person serious about a business needs to have in their stable of advisors. This doesn't mean that you find one and you keep them if they suck. They might suck and then you get a new one. With attorneys, I often like to get opinions from two totally different attorneys. When they give me the exact same answer, I tend to want to follow it. But attorneys are always going to do this. They're always going to give you the absolute 100% safest course of action. And then you have to determine your risk tolerance. You take their advice and you make your decision. Okay? So that's what I'm, that's the number one thing I would say is get into your life a good tax attorney and a good CPA and discuss your individual situations with them. Pay them a few hundred bucks a piece. Write it off as consulting, you know, professional services that you've paid for that's deductible from your taxes, by the way. And that they have earned their money so many times over. Okay? And I can't give you more than that in concrete, actionable things. The next thing, though, is I'll tell you, the, the, the quagmire that is the IRS. Okay, the IRS sucks, just to be blunt. Paying taxes sucks. I consider all taxes theft, and I consider the payment of taxes a necessary evil. 
And also, I didn't say taxes are a necessary evil. Right? The payment of taxes are a necessary evil. To, to participate in this system, you have to pay your taxes, or people come and put silver bracelets on you and take you away and extort you for the rest of your life to get their money back from you. It's not really their money, it's your money, but they see it as their money and they will take it from you, so you have to pay them. But there's not a lot of a quagmire for the self-employed contractor. The employer who wants to employ a contractor, it gets really gray really fast. Are they a contractor or are they an employee? Uh, there's so many employers that want to go to contractors to avoid Obamacare, unforeseen consequence, not, um, that, that, that the government's trying to make sure that's not what you're doing. And there's a lot of other things you have to do for employees that the government doesn't want to let you get out of doing by just saying, oh, they're a contractor. So there's a lot of rules to what makes somebody a contractor. They have to set their own hours, set their own schedule. You know, you can pay them hourly, but if they work 28 hours this week and 32 hours next week, that can't be a problem. If you have like a minimum number of hours to fulfill a contract, you can write that in, but you got to be careful about that. You can't tell them how to do their job, etc. Um, when you're an independent contractor yourself, it's not your problem. You're not employed. Now, if you end up with 10 people working for your company, all as independent contractors in your company, then you got an issue. But when you're a, a sole proprietorship, even in the form of a corporation, you can treat yourself however you want. And this is something a lot of people don't know. If you form a corporation, and you employ yourself as an employee of that corporation, your corporation can be subject to a lot of shit that it has to do for you, whether you want to do it or not. But since it's your corporation and you're an officer in the corporation, you're immune to most of it, so your company doesn't have to do it for you. Isn't that convenient? So that's part, but this is, again, this is all stuff you talk to with your, your account and your CPA. Um, I, you know, what do you, here's the thing. Your business model is so unlike my business model. I'm not an independent contractor. I'm an entertainer and an educator, uh, that runs a business that sells primarily an informational, immaterial product. Right? So I, 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 I'm not operating as a contractor. I don't go to somebody's house, render services, and bill them for it. That's contracting. I provide a, a, an informational platform that people purchase a service to go along with it if they choose to. It's really clean. It's really simple. It's why I took this business model. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with contracting. So you're more in the professional services model. And so you need a to talk to someone from a, a, a tax consequences and legal consequences standpoint that specializes in working with people that are in the professional services. I can't give you any more than that because I don't even know what you do. You've been working with families doing what? What do you do? for do you, do you Are you a financial advisor? That has a whole shit ton of regulations that are different than you know anything else. Or do you, what do you do? Do you do energy audits and say this is how you improve? I mean, I don't know what you do. So I kind of have to cut it there, but just for everybody that's going to ask me stuff like this, I'm going to say two things to you. Tax attorney, CPA. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Jesse in San Diego. Got a bit of an earthworks question for you. At what point does the slope become too steep to use swales? Uh, reason I ask is out here we have lots of properties with, with considerable slopes people want to do things on. I've looked at a couple properties, but... What is the, the, the point where swale becomes uh, not the right choice and terracing becomes the best option? And on top of that, what are some uh, 
strategies for terracing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject, and uh, hope to see you next week out here in San Diego. All right? Take it easy, man. Every single person that really knows anything about permaculture is laughing right now because they know exactly the two words that are about to come out of my mouth. Dun, dun, dun. It depends. It depends. Um, in one place, you might look at a 15-degree slope and say, no problem. And in another place, you look at a 15-degree slope and say, no way. What's the soil like? How deep is it? What's it sitting on top of? What's the rainfall? What's the maximum rainfall? What's the catchment that goes into it? What's going to be planted into it? How long is it going to take to mature? Where's the discharge water going? Can you return it to the same catchment that it came from or not? Is that acceptable where you're at or not? I don't know. Right? But let's just put it this way. There is a point where a slope is steep enough that you don't, don't, don't swale it. There's also a point where it's steep enough that you don't terrace it. Now, where is that? This is this is where it's very important for me to break this into two things. Okay, what to do once you've decided you're going to do it, and two, being qualified enough to qualified enough to decide that's what you want to do. In the world of permaculture, I feel we have a rampant problem of people that understand the techniques at a small degree. And the idea at a small degree. And they believe that the technique is the idea. And the technique is permaculture. And it is not. It is like saying that since I might wear a suit to a wedding, that a wedding is my, my, my wardrobe. All right? Or that I always dress for a wedding. I go back to the wardrobe and dress differently if I'm working in the garden, going to a wedding, testifying at uh, a court hearing, uh, I don't know, driving a truck, going hunting, uh, hanging out in the mountains in the summer, hanging out in the mountains in the winter. I'm going to dress differently to the occasion. And the, the way I would dress is analogous to all these techniques, swales, dams, key line, hugel beds, food forest construction, Uh, contour-based gardening, uh, uh, natural trellising, uh, chicken tractors. All of these things are just different items of clothing that I would pull out. And you probably shouldn't be deciding whether or not you should put in a major element like a large swale until you have enough fundamental understanding of permaculture that you know why you're doing it. And there's caveats with that, like if you have relatively easy to understand flat land, easy calculations for water, and you can put in a basic swale there, and it's just dirt, and you can move it easily, and there's not really much that can go wrong, and you plant it with a whole bunch of shit, it's probably not going to hurt anything, right? You do it on the side of a mountain in a place there already are problems with mudslides, and you might make those worse. So it, it's first of all, you have to be to the point that you know why you're doing it in the first place. Then the second part is knowing if the design makes sense from an engineering standpoint for the individual situation. And this is where, whenever you're not 100% sure, you avail yourself of the services of a professional engineer that deals with earthworks-type things. They don't have to know anything about permaculture. If you get an engineer 
that works with construction and, and, and big equipment and moves dirt around and sets things up and puts in bar ditches and stuff like that. And you say, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. Whether they think they would do that or not, they will know exactly what you're talking about. I'm trying to take this water, hold it in the catchment, infiltrate it in the soil. I'm going to be putting this on contour. I'm going to be doing a 1% grade for key line to move the water from the valley out to the river. When you talk like that, they'll know exactly what you're saying. And when you say, and this is how big it's going to be, how deep it's going to be, this is the catchment area, this is my plan, this is my overflow, this is a soil type, and they look at it, they'll be able to say, yeah, that'll work, or that's not going to work. Now, they might not think it works for agricultural purposes. They might not realize what the, the secret sauce is. But from a safety and engineering standpoint, they will be able to very quickly go, yeah, don't do that. You're going to bring the side of the mountain down. Trust them, trust them, trust them. So I think when you get in anything hairy, you got to start trusting professionals. You know, I might decide I want to put in a three-quarter acre dam somewhere, and I want to put in uh, a thousand feet of swale to catchment, and it's going to feed and backfill, and it's going to overflow way the hell over there, so that my well, my dam discharges, and it's going to go down to this next catchment, hit another swale, and I can design all of that, okay? And I might bring an engineer in who would never come up with that. But if he tells me the math is wrong, then I'm going to say, how do we make it right? Or are you telling me this can't be done? And I'm going to trust him to, to give me his professional opinion. So the problem you have, though, is now you're going around looking at land trying to figure out what makes sense. And you're, you're stuck with the magic trifecta that you have to find on any piece of land. You always start when you're surveying land. And when I say surveying, I don't mean, you know, with laser levels and property lines. I'm talking about surveying it with your eye and your intuition and saying, do I want to purchase? Do I want to own this? Do I want, do I want to take this on as a project? Water, access, structure. Okay. So I'm going to have to be able to get Myself, my equipment, my people, my materials, etc. Across the land, around the land, over the land, through the land. And I'm going to have to, if I'm going to use any kind of steep slopes at all, and I'm putting any kind of roadways in, these need to be on contour. Or I will spend heaven's high water in expense constantly repairing things. So I need to make my main tracks, my main access tracks, contour-based. Period. Okay. Then I have to make sure, well, am I going to have, with, with that, am I going to have water? What, what do I need to irrigate? What do I need to provide water to? Myself? All living beings? You know, how much rainfall is there? Where can I put in a pond? And structure. What structures are on the property? And what structures do I want to place on the property? And are there appropriate places for those structures to go? Is the main structure I'm investing in completely in the wrong place? Then maybe that's not the property for me. Is there enough right about the rest of the... So, These are complicated, man. These are complicated. But when it comes to, do I put a terrace here? If I do, how big is it? <laughs> man, you gotta, you gotta look to the experts for that type of thing. And you gotta understand something about terraces. When you put a terrace in, you cut out the side of the hill, you make whatever slope goes down grade steeper at the edge of that terrace. If that makes sense. So, If you, you can imagine when you, when you move that earth out and you create that, you, you end up with this, this, this loose soil on the downgrade side of that terrace and it's highly subjective to erosion. 
So you better make sure you really want to do this. And it has to be planted immediately. And it has to be, and the bigger it is, the, the more aggressive what goes in there has to be that's planted to hold it together. You know, uh, buckwheat ain't going to make it happen. Buckwheat and cowpea are not going to hold up a terrace. First of all, their annuals are going to die at the end of the year if they take in the subsoil that's exposed. You might have to go in there and plant something like locust. You know, something really, really hardy that's going to hold the soil together on that downward slope. So, you know, and how big is the terrace going to be? Is it worth disrupting? Because giving you another technique. So one of the things uh, Masanobu Fukuoka did on his property in Japan, which was very hilly, is in some places, instead of doing any kind of earthworks or swales, he went in and planted trees on contour. And then he built up soil downgraded the trees and basically turned them into swell-like terraces. So, I mean, again, you got to really evaluate the individual situation. And I hate to use the, the, the colloquial, it depends, but that's what it depends on. It depends. And so here's the answer. You never do what isn't safe. You never do what isn't safe. You never do what's too expensive for what you're going to get out of it. And you never do what isn't practical. So that's, that's, the, that's the, what it depends on. What's safe, what's practical, and how much does it cost, and what do I get in return? So I'm always for the lowest cost solution with the greatest return and the maximum element of safety. And when you get into certain situations, you need to bring in people with a different type of expertise to check that safety. Let's take another one. Actually, uh, I want to do now, I want to bring uh, ask two questions uh, handled by expert council member Stephen Harris this week. Both of them are on batteries. So I'm just going to play both questions and both answers back-to-back, and then I'll come back, and i got a few more for you today. Jack, this question is for Steve Harris. What is the best 1-2-3 batteries, the ones that go into the Surefire flashlights? Or should I just disregard the Surefire flashlights and get a normal flashlight that uses the nickel metal hydride rechargeable batteries? Also, I have not been able to find rechargeable one, two, three batteries. Do they make them? If they do, what is the best one to get? Thank you very much for the show. Steve Harris, you are the man. Jack, you're also the man. Thanks. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. There are no good CR123 batteries. Basically, they're a dying battery. They're dead. No one is really making new stuff that runs off of CR123 batteries. There are some holdouts like the tactical flashlight market and everything, but even these people are slowly but surely switching over to the 18650 batteries. So the reason you don't see any CR123 rechargeables anywhere on any of my 1234 websites is because they're all junk. CR123 lithium batteries, the type you use and you then throw away, they are 3.0 volts. Rechargeable CR123s are 3.7 volts and are famous for killing flashlights and other devices with their higher voltage. Some places on Amazon say their rechargeable CR123s are 3.0 volts. They are lying. It is trickery. 
When you put two CR123s together that are 3.7 volts, you get 7.4 volts. And 7.4 volts going into a flashlight or other device that's expecting 6.0 volts many times will destroy it. If you have some really nice Surefire flashlights or other tactical, tactical flashlights that use CR123s, then you should sell them on, on eBay and buy a new flashlight that uses, uses either AA batteries or one of the new batteries like the 14500 lithium-ion rechargeable or the bigger 18650 lithium-ion rechargeable batteries. It's the 18650 battery that is replacing the older CR123 batteries. They are by far a superior battery over the CR123s. What does 14500 and 18650 mean? That is their size. A 14500 is 14 millimeters in diameter and 50 millimeters long. The 18650 is 18 millimeters in diameter and 65 millimeters long. The 14500 battery, remember 14500, is exactly the same size as a AA battery. As a AA alkaline or AA nickel metal hydride battery, it is the same size. So if you put a 14500 into an old style flashlight that expects one AA at 1.5 volts, you'll burn out the LED or the bulb pretty quickly. Now, the exciting part. There are many new flashlights on the market. Including, including one made by my favorite flash, uh, flashlight manufacturer, Coast, that takes either one AA alkaline or one AA lithium, like the Energizer throwaway lithiums, or one AA metal, nickel metal hydride, or it takes one 14500 lithium ion battery, and it gives you more light with the 14500 battery in it. I have the Coast flashlight. It's 10 bucks and higher quality than a Maglite. I have the Coast flashlight and it's very high quality, 14500 cells and very high quality charger up on the bottom of prep1234.com. That's prep1234.com. Uh, I have carried a Coast flashlight that I, that uses one AA battery in my pocket every day for over 10 years. That is how much I love them. Now, why am I saying high quality when it comes to 14500 and 18650 batteries? It's because the high quality batteries have three forms of protection built into them. There are no forms of protection built into a AA alkaline or AA nickel metal hydride. They don't need it because their chemistry is inherently stable. I won't go into the details here of the methods of protection in a 14500 or 18650 because it's a very long and detailed answer. But if you short circuit or overcharge a cheap 14500 or 18650 lithium-ion battery, you can start a fire and burn your house down. I'm not joking. The battery will literally spit out sparks 
flames and then explode and blow itself all to pieces. I have a link to a YouTube video of this happening in the descriptions of the batteries at the very bottom of the Prep1234 website. If you like Spark and Flames, go watch the video. Now, I want to emphasize that if you have the right 14500 and 18650s and the right charger, you can trust them. So, I have on the bottom of Prep1234.com a very high-quality 14500 battery, a very high-quality 18650 battery made by Panasonic, who also makes our favorite end-loop batteries. And I have a very high-quality 14500 and 18650 battery charger. And I have a nice flashlight that uses 14500. And I have a nice flashlight that uses uses 18650 batteries. Sorry for the details, guys, but I really had to alert you to the interesting things that can happen with the lithium-ion batteries that you don't expect because you're used to alkaline batteries or nickel metal hydrides, I think you should know. I think you should read my descriptions and look at the items on the bottom of Prep1234. I think you should watch the video of the 18650 battery I have on YouTube exploding. And I thank you very much for the excellent question. And this is Steve Harris. All my stuff with Jack is at Stephen1234.com, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, guys. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Jay from Oregon. i got a question for Stephen Harris. Specifically, what does he recommend for 9-volt rechargeable batteries? Uh, thanks a lot. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. 9-volt batteries, I recommend the Tenergy batteries. That's T-E-N-E-R-G-Y. They are on solar1234.com and battery1234.com underneath the Tenergy charger. I put up there the low self-discharge 9-volt batteries. You, Anytime you are buying nickel metal hydride batteries, you will always always want the low self-discharge batteries. They will hold their charge for over a year. I mean, in a year, you might expect about 80% of the battery to still be there. With regular nickel metal hydrides, it can be pretty much dead in one year. So that's my recommendation. Get all of the stuff I've done with, done with Jack at Stephen1234.com. Talk to you again next week. I'm going to make a real quick append here. Um, 9-volt batteries are pretty much dead. They are not really... New stuff is not being made today that runs off of 9-volt batteries. Anything new coming out is running off of AA or AAA batteries, and AA is a much better battery than a 9-volt. In many cases, even a AAA is better than a 9-volt. So try not to buy new things, if you can even find them, that run off of 9-volt batteries. Try to buy new things that run off of AA or AAA and preferably double-A. Thank you. Hi, Jack. This is Chris from West Georgia. I have a question about nine-mile farms. I'm wondering if you are USDA certified in agriculture, and if so, uh, what's the process? Uh, if not, get your thoughts on becoming USDA certified, not organic, just as an ag- in agriculture. Thank you.
we are not, and what you're asking about doesn't really exist in the way that you're asking. Let's let's talk about what does exist. So USDA certified um, organic is one thing, and that's not what you're asking about. So we'll just leave that on the shelf because that's just the government ruining a perfectly good word. Because um, organic means carbon-based okay, life, basically. So, yeah, okay, everything is organic that's alive or ever was alive uh, and has not been you know rendered inert of carbon at this point. So, so we'll just leave that one on the shelf where it belongs for now. USDA certified has to do with how food is handled, not necessarily how it's grown. So when you plant a field of corn, the field is not USDA certified anything if it's conventional cropping. Now, when that corn has certain processes done to it, or when it goes for sale, there's certain ways and channels and means that you must go through. And at certain points and certain quantities and certain et cetera, there's USDA certified facilities to do that. So as a producer, the only reason I would want to be USDA certified is if I was doing something to the food that I needed the certification in order to do and then resell. So if we look at the pasture uh, chicken market, for instance, uh, some states have a threshold of a thousand, some have three thousand. Where as long as you are selling direct to the consumer, and then there's certain caveats with that, like some places it's okay that, that you're selling at a farmer's market, some places it's okay that you take it to the customer as long as you deliver it yourself, some places direct to consumer means they come to your facility, right? You don't need it until you go over that number, okay? Now, what would get certified is the facility itself and the practices outlined for its use. So if you wanted to put in a USDA kitchen for canning goods and stuff like that, there's a whole shit list of things you have to have in place. These will include things for the safety of the preparation of the food and things for the for the safety of the people doing the prep work. So you might have things in there like fire suppression, even though it has nothing to do with whether or not the can of beans I sell you is safe or not. But again, these are usually based on a certain quantity and then the, and then also the sales channel thereafter. So there's no need for us to do that. You know, we're producing, you know, a few dozen eggs here, you know, a day. Uh, we plan to move up to quite a bit more, but we're still, you know, looking at, you know, producing way less eggs than necessary uh, for any kind of certification as a, as a, as a provider, as long as we sell direct to the consumer. And that even means we can sell direct to a customer who then uses a USDA certified facility to do something else with the product as a value add. In other words, if I sell my eggs to a supermarket and they sell to a customer, the customer uh, then becomes the end customer of the product and the supermarket's not a USDA certified facility for the handling of food. It is handling already certified food, so I can't do that. I can't do that. I can sell it directly to you. I can bring it to your house and deliver it to you, but I can't sell it through Joe's independent grocery store without a certification in how it's handled before it goes to Joe. Now, if you are a chef with a commercial kitchen that has your own you know, procedures and safe practices and blessing from the God that is the state, and you want to buy my eggs, prepare my eggs in your commercial kitchen and sell them, 
you're my customer and we're done. So I don't need USDA certification. So it's about going beyond certain quantities in certain things. You can grow all the corn you want and sell it to a wholesaler who, you know, it gets processed somewhere else. You don't have to be certified anything to do that. If that makes sense. So it's a big congealed mess. And here's my advice. Unless there's a clear benefit to you, never enter into any contract with government that you don't have to. So if you build up a business and you get to a point where you're doing your thousand, three thousand units of whatever, and you to to go beyond that, you need some sort of blessing from the government. Or if you're going to go into the the cheese making world and you probably have to immediately to make any quantity at all and sell it, you have to get your blessing from the the god that is the state. Um, then you do it because you know why you're doing it. But if you're processing, uh, you know, a thousand chickens a year and the state you live in and the federal government say that's completely acceptable, you're selling direct to consumer anyway, and you're, you, th- there's no reason for you to, to, to invite the devil into your doorstep, right? It's like the vampire. He can't come in unless you invite him in. He's made an agreement with you. If you do these things and nothing more, I'll stay away. You go, no, no, come on in, come on in. Well, you sure? I welcome you to come in, right? Okay, you're done. Right, so you're creating a problem for yourself. Then, so when it comes to you know the plant propagation business, we will get this is not USDA certification. We will get a nursery license at the point where we're ready to begin the reselling of plants from the state of Texas. Why? Because the state of Texas says if I'm going to resell a plant, and if that plant overwinters, period. And there's some other times I might need it, but but if I'm selling anything that you put in the ground this year and next year it comes back. And I'm selling that to the public at large. I'm selling it to, to the mail order. doesn't matter. If I'm selling that as a propagator, I have to have a license from the state of Texas. It's about 60 bucks a year. And once a year, if that, someone comes out and makes sure you don't have a bunch of diseases on your plants. So it's no big deal. So it's worth the agreement so that we can have the business unit. All right? So... I say this because every time I talk about doing anything, everybody wants to know, what do I do with government? What do I do with government? And the answer is always as little as possible. You know, I had a, a person ask on the blog today, well, what certifications is a restaurant going to ask for if I'm selling them my, my eggs or whatever? And my answer was nothing. And so you get to a certain quantity. And the response was, well, I know somebody that knows somebody that, you know, the biggest hotel chains or whatever across the world. It doesn't matter, okay? It doesn't matter unless you're producing enough that it's required of you. You're selling to a licensed commercial food preparation facility. They incur the liability for the handling of the food. Don't mess that up. It, it, don't don't incur a liability that's not required of you to incur, right? Don't go out of your way to like say, uh, you know what? I'd like to be responsible for anything that goes wrong with this food, because when your food goes to a kitchen, a commercial kitchen, it will be prepared to a, a, a different standard than Susie Homemaker might. They have certain temperatures and t- cooking times and cleanliness standards, and honestly, the The, the professional chefs of the world, because of the world they live in, are driven crazy by home cooks. 
They look at the sanitation in a home kitchen. Oh, my God. And here's the thing. You know what, professional chefs? Get the F over it. Because we're doing it every day, all the time, and nobody's getting sick and nobody's dying. There's a reason you have those rules. You're feeding 100, 200, 300, 1,000 people a day. There's people in and out of the kitchen. There's, there's 20 different things. I mean, there, there's a reason for these higher standards. I get them in a kitchen, in a commercial kitchen. But it's those standards that then be, you know, in most instances. Yeah, you got to check always your local government and local and state government and say, what do I need to do? Now, I prefer that you check this way. You do the research, get the information, and if you have a question, ask an attorney. Never, never, Never call a government bureaucrat and say, do I need a permit? Because they're going to say, yeah, when you don't. Because that's what they do. Because, the, you see, there's, there's certain laws. And whenever you as a member of the public talk to anybody that's going to speak to you and just pick the phone up and have a conversation with you, connected to government, they are never the top of their heap. That means there's always someone that will give them shit if they make the wrong decision. So they will always err to the side of caution and tell you you can't do something that you can or you need something that you don't. So if you can, you know, read the regulations and it says, you know, uh, a, a, a producer of eggs in our in state of Texas not exceeding 3,000 birds uh, on property per year selling direct to consumer under the following circumstances does not need to comply with state regulations A, B, C, D, and E. Then you say, okay, it says I don't have to do it. Yeehaw! I don't have to do it. I'm not going to do it. And until such time as I exceed that regulation, I ain't doing it. And if somebody says, why aren't you doing it? I'm going to say, because it says right there, I don't have to do it. And if I'm not sure if it applies to me, then I'm going to go get an attorney. I'm going to say, look at this. Here's what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Here's what the law says. Am I legal? And if anybody makes a call to government, let the attorney do it. Pay him a couple hundred bucks. Because when the person says, well, it says, you know, it says, yeah, you have to. So, I, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm reading, you know, section 102, five section A, subset B, you know, and it says blah, 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 blah. They're either going to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you don't have to do that. Or they're going to say, uh, let me connect you on line three to so-and-so over in whatever. But when you call, not always, but most of the time, you're just going to be told, yeah, you have to. And, yeah, we, we require. And, and usually you... You don't. So please, a lot of you guys that are watching what we're doing with Nine Mile Farmstead, that are watching the Duck Chronicles. By the way, episode 30 is out. I just didn't put it on the blog. If you go to duckchronicles.com, you'll go right to the playlist if you want to see the latest episodes of Duck Chronicles. You know, always are looking for, you know, are you filing a Schedule F? And Listen, always know why you're doing what you're doing, just like permaculture. Sometimes it makes sense to track every expense down to the penny and do everything with paperwork and get papers from government that say you're allowed to do things you should be allowed to do anyway. And sometimes it makes sense to just run your hobby business like what it is, a hobby business, completely legally, under the law, the way that it's written, based on the interpretation that any rational law-abiding citizen would have. And don't invite the department of making you sad. Don't invite the department of making you sad into your home to be a blood-sucking vampire unless you have to. And when you do, always have garlic and a wooden steak at the ready. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jake Robinson, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Just heard announced on Rush Limbaugh that Obama plans to ban 556 for the AR-15 as a way to 
clamp down on gun control. Now, I'm hoping this is false, but I don't see even Rush Limbaugh making that faux pas uh, with 20 million listeners. How does this affect, um, how does this impact? What, what are the ramifications? It seems like this is a great way over the next two years to get even. Just quit, keep writing those executive orders. Looking very bleak over the next year. Well, I don't know that Rush Limbaugh said that Obama plans or has signed an executive order to ban 5.56 ammo. I don't know if he said that or not. But if he did, and he said it with that blanket statement, then he did screw it up badly. What Obama's executive order addresses is a, a sneaky, sleazy, scumball circumvention of individual citizenship rights uh, under current laws and regulations, and it is scummy, and it is awful, and it is terrible, and it is no doubt an attempt to appease uh, anti-gun uh, constituents. There's, there's no doubt about it. And it's a, it, it is no doubt that it is for the expressed intention of doing one more thing to piss off gun owners and one more thing to make you know getting ammo for your weapon a little bit possibly more difficult. Okay? It is. But it really isn't that big of a deal in practice. It's a big deal in principle. There's going to be all kinds of people, Jack, you don't understand. What this could lead to next is, well, there's a lot of stuff that could lead to a lot of things next, but you, you, you have to judge individual things on what they do and what they are. So there's a, a, a type of ammo that we generally call in, in, in the, uh, the surplus world green tips. Okay, green tips, because it has green paint on it. It's uh, also known as M855. It's a military surplus ammo, and it is being banned as being armor-piercing and armor-piercing handgun ammunition. That's how sneaky, backdoor, sleazy this executive action is. It's basically reclassifying this ammo as armor-piercing, and therefore, because they make the AR platform that fires the 5.56 in a pistol, under existing regulations, it should have already been illegal, but it's not, so we're going to make sure that we classify it. So they, what he actually did wasn't ban anything. He, through the stroke of a pen, reclassified something that wasn't armor-piercing as to be an armor-piercing. And then, because it could be used in a handgun, now we've banned this particular round, the M8855 Green Tip Surplus Round. That is the only thing that has been reclassified, and therefore the only thing that, if you want to call it that, has been banned. Got it? Okay. Again, I want to be clear. I am not saying that this is legitimate, a legitimate action of government. It is not. I am not saying that M855 is actually armor-piercing, because it isn't. It is not an armor-piercing round. This is a big pile of bullshit. And my good friend Brian Black has an article on ITS called... Military ammunition and why green tip 855 is not armor piercing. And to point out that this has not been a brand new issue and that Brian's not just trying to capitalize on something hot right now, he authored this article June 6, 2011. Okay? 
So I'll put a link to that article so you can see why it's wrong. It's almost as if the green paint made it armor piercing is the way it is a, a, a fully metal jacketed round. It is a combat round and it is commonly sold as surplus. Because it's commonly sold as surplus, it's generally sold cheap, so a lot of people have bought it. But the truth is, the majority of people out there freaking out on Facebook saying, and, and these headlines being written by people, Obama targets the AR platform by banning 5.56 ammunition. The majority of people all freaked out about this have never bought or purchased or ever would have purchased in their lifetimes a single round of M855. Not a single round. If I went to the, the, the people most upset about this, that are freaking out, and, and not so much upset, but the people, because the people that, that use it, probably pissed because it was a good source of cheap ammunition. It is kind of shitty for civilian ARs, though, because the rate of twist and the weight of the bullet and the length of the bullet, but it works. It's good, it's good enough. It does what it's supposed to do. Um, <laughs> but the people that are really like having this, this overreaction and writing these misleading headlines as though if you go to, if you go to the store, you'll just not be able to get 5.56 ammo at all. And there'll be no military surplus ammo ever again either. Um, have never bought a round of it. And if there weren't a bunch of pictures going around right now, we wouldn't even know what it looked like. So this is an example of your government screwing you, screwing you, your government making what assault it can on the Second Amendment, but the media reporting it being completely, totally irresponsible in its reporting. And what you're doing, pay attention if you're one of the people that wrote one of these things, okay, or made one of these memes up or whatever, and you don't know what the F you're talking about, pay attention to what you're doing to all us gun owners. You're making us look like a bunch of freaking idiots. You're costing us credibility with the people that are undecided because they're hearing your hysteria, and then they're going out and finding, like, did they really do that? Jim? Jim, do you know anything about this? these ARs? These uh, auto rifles or whatever, I know that's not what it means. I know that's not what it means. That's what Jim and, and Tony think. These, whatever these black rifles these guys have, uh, did, did they ban the ammo for those? I don't know, Tom. Says so on Facebook. Maybe we should figure that out. Oh, they they didn't ban the ammo. They banned this, these, these armor-piercing things from the military. They can still get that stuff everywhere. Those guys are all crazy. See, they want, they want, they want armor-piercing ammo. And that's the move. That's the move. Okay, it's a chess game. You guys are playing checkers. The people that run this country are playing three-dimensional frickin' space chess. That's the move. They've offered up a pawn, so you'll attack it, so they can smack the shit out of you with the rook that's two levels above you. You don't even know it's there. They want you to go into hysteria over this, and they want you to overreact to this, and they want it sensationalized so that they can stand back and say, listen, all we did is keep this dangerous armor-piercing ammo off the street. Whether you think you need a 10-round or 30-round clip, yeah, I know it's not really a clip, but that's how they talk, a 10- or 30-round clip or not to kill a deer, we can all agree, at least, can't we, that you don't need armor-piercing rounds By the way, you can still get armor-piercing rounds for everything except those scary black ARs. You just can't get it from the military for those scary black ARs. These people are crazy. Look at, and they're lying. They're saying we ban, they can get all the ammo they want. They just can't, and they're saying they can't get ammo? 
I could see, you know, some liberal news guy going, let's go see if they really ban this. And they go down to, like, you know, Academy Sports and Outdoors or something. And, uh, two, two, is that 556? They'll like, get a clerk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is all. So all of this is, you can still buy all of this? Yeah. So this is, you can buy this. Yeah, yeah, you can buy. And that goes in. Can, can we see the gun that goes in? Well, it goes in a lot of guns. But let's go in those black ones. Can we see one of those? Oh, that, this thing. Yeah, that there. So this goes in there. It does. So this wasn't banned. Oh. Reporting for News 3. Jim Idiot. And we look like the idiots. Because we overreact. Does that mean we should do nothing? No. But I don't know what you're going to do. Your Republican Congress will fix this. No, they won't. They won't do anything at all about this. Let me tell you what Obama's doing with, that, with executive actions right now. Anything that he knows he can get away with. And he'll do as much as he can for his last two years in office. And if he puts out 120 get hammered by courts and whatever, he'll, he'll make a big bravado thing about it. But he's going to go out laying all this shit down. All right? And at the same time, he is enraging the Republican base and charging up the Democratic base and setting up a whole shitstorm of hatred for the 2016 election. Because the only way the Democrats think they can hold on is by fathoming up enough hatred. Okay? The other side of this is, he's also been, I believe, given by his handlers the what I call the Hamlet order. Okay? The Hamlet order. In, in, in Hamlet, at one point, Hamlet basically plays the fool. I guess you have to be well-read to understand the Hamlet order. Um, so it sounds like you're ordering a ham omelet or something. But the Hamlet order by his handlers basically look like an idiot, look incompetent, play a lot of golf, uh, say stupid shit. But I don't want to. Yeah, we'll just put it in your teleprompter and you'll say it. Okay? <laughs> and the reason is that what the right needs for a full takeover is fear. So the left needs anger and the right needs fear. That's why they're both your enemies, Okay? And what they're hoping is to ferment enough fear in you. World War III is coming. Al-Qaeda has turned into ISIS, and now they're living in your living room. They're in all 50 states! Yeah, that report was recently just... I mean, come on. Glenn Beck is just over the top. World War III is coming. It's already started. Okay. Right? What did Jack tell you? ISIS and peppered with World War III rumors would be here in a couple weeks, and here we are in the middle of it. This is just a, the reason I got into this topic now off of this ammo thing is this is just a piece of this. All of this is designed to elicit a reaction from you. And it's a microcosm of what's going on in the Middle East. You see these crazy people, there really are people when you tell them like all this ISIS threat is overblown, they think you're one of the like nut job conspiracy theorists. There is no ISIS, no one's ever been set on fire, it's all fake. Uh, no, it's all sensationalized. It doesn't mean it's fake. These crazy bastards are over there, and again, they would kill, like I've said earlier this week, they would kill you dead if they could. Right? But they are feeding on a mass delusion. And you know what they're doing right now? And this is the one thing I, I heard Glenn Beck today as I drove home white knuckled in the snow. Uh, he happened to be on the radio, so I was listening to him. One thing he's got right, but the, the solution then is to give them what they want, because we should be fighting them. Oh, come on. Is that they're trying to bait us into a battle. 
that, that ISIS believes that it's time for Armageddon and they want to face basically us at, on their, they want a war. They want one because they believe the fifth Imam's coming back or the twelfth Imam or whatever the hell he is. It's coming back, and they're going to get their version of what Christians call a rapture. And This is what these people want. So they're trying to ferment anger. They're doing all of these things that, they're, that you're seeing, smashing things and, and killing people and beheading people. So you'll be so angry that you'll run off and want to fight them. But you know what? When someone's asking for something like that, The best thing you can do is not give it to them. So our foreign policy right now needs to be, we'll kill the shit out of you if you attack us. Fix your own shit. Right? The most honest thing I heard on the Glenn Beck show today was he had somebody on there was talking to and said, do you give the order to go into Iraq knowing what you know now? Or do you leave Saddam Hussein in place? And the guy said, I could not in good conscience give the order to go in. Guess uh, most of the country got duped with that, huh? Anyway, the understanding you have to have is when the left is doing it, everything it can to create anger, okay, and fear, and or and the right is doing everything it can to to instill on the left hatred. And you have hatred and anger being fermented by both sides that have the same agenda in the end. What's the best thing to do? Withdraw your anger and your hatred. You can't act on hatred. You can't make decisions on hatred. You can't make decisions on anger. And you can't make decisions on fear. It is the control mechanism that they're using on you right now. And what they want out of this is they want... Anger from the right on this bullet thing, on this ammo thing, right? We took it away from you. You can't have it now. A lot of people want it now that never... There's people running out to buy what's available right now that have never owned a round of this stuff in their life and never would have. They're reacting on anger and fear. And they want the other side, their lackeys, to say, these people are crazy. And they want them to be angry at you for daring Daring to want to own armor. What the hell do you want that? And they want them to be afraid of you. A people divided are easily, absolutely, 100%, easily, you thought I was going to say lead, uh-uh, easily enslaved, easily imprisoned, easily controlled. There is no one in our government right now that has any interest in leading you anywhere. Leaders stand with their people. Leaders lead from the front. There's none of these people want to lead. They want to control. They want to enslave. They want power. They want money. They want things their way. Leaders never act this way because by being, let's say, in the formation with the troops, you have to deal with the reality of what you create. We need some leaders. Unfortunately, when it comes to government, we don't have any. So you better lead in your own life. and Don't buy into bullshit like this. See it for what it is. It's a power grab. It's wrong, but it's not a ban of AR. It's not a ban of ammo for AR-15s, for Pete's sakes. Let's, uh, let's take another one. 
Hi, I was just wanting to get your comments and thoughts on how to deal with uh, mature trees as you go to set up a food forest. I've got uh, four maples and a sycamore on my uh, one-third acre lot. Uh, they're, they're pretty big. I don't think that we're able to do maple syrup here in Kansas, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but I was just wondering if there's any any types of uses that I can get out of them until I har- uh, harvest them out or uh, anything that they can be used permaculture-wise uh, until then. Thank you much. Bye. Existing trees are always nice and a challenge, right? So we have to think a little bit more before we put a chainsaw to something that took 20 or 30 or 40 years to become what it is, or even 10. It's a huge investment that nature's made in creating that, and you take it out and You get a big open space and you want to plant other things. How do you balance that? So let's start out with what you can do with them. So um, the maples, it, 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 it's probably the case in Kansas that you can get maple to sap the flow. I don't know if it'll flow quite as good as it does for someone in Vermont uh, where it's like maple syrup ground zero. But you know, even down into Pennsylvania, now last I checked, Kansas had kind of a longer, colder, harsher winter. Uh, and, and took a little bit longer to warm up than a lot of, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, which is more of an East Coast state. So you probably can get sap to flow, but is it a sugar maple? Right? Is it a, is it a maple that one would make syrup from? So you can give that a shot this spring and see. It's, it's not hard to do. You can look up how to do it and that would be great. Now a lot of people don't know this. There's a lot of trees other than maples that you can make syrup from and you can actually make syrup from sycamore. And you can get a sweet, sap from sycamore that can be used as, a, as more of a water and you can do you can use maple sap straight as the way it is too it's actually very refreshing and it takes a lot less energy to simply use the sap uh than it does to uh to cook it down into a syrup black walnut by the way can be made into syrup a lot of people don't know that as well very interesting syrup that black walnut sap makes so you can see if you can get the flow there there's a lot of things the sycamore uh can be used for the leaves actually can be used for cooking so you can wrap things In, in sycamore to keep them moist and, and, and roast things tied up in sycamore leaves. Uh, it's kind of a, a traditional way to, uh, to cook. Uh, there's, there's tons of stuff that you can do, but you know, it's will you or won't you? Do, do they make sense for a suburban lot? Are you going to be doing that much, uh, you know, use of, uh, of those things? I don't know. In, in permaculture, what you, what you have is you have your canopy there. Those are your, your, your canopy trees. So now you're, you have a seven layer forest system. You're coming down to your sub canopy, your herbaceous, et cetera. The thing is with a third acre lot, how, you know, depending on your orientation, your whole yard could be shaded. And that might really limit what else you can do. So you have to make your own decisions about when you do and when you don't remove trees. But I always try to err to the side of let's not remove a tree if we don't have to. Um, a little easier for me though. I'm in Texas. Shade here for four or five hours a day. It's usually a good thing. As long as there's some sun morning and afternoon or what have you, then, you know, full sun doesn't mean the same thing in Texas as it does in Pennsylvania. When I lived in Pennsylvania, we had marigolds that got shaded out for like the last two hours of the day and they were wimpy and weak and the ones that just missed the shadow of the house were huge and beautiful. And that two hours was just too much taken away from them for them to produce well there. You come down here and you put that same plant out in the bullish open sun and it gets over overblown, basically. Plants can only take in so much sun. So you have to make that decision for yourself and you have to kind of really look at the design in total. And it's just, 
it's hard for me to ever recommend that somebody cut down, you know, beautiful trees like maples and sycamore. They're gorgeous trees, but they're not the most productive. So you have to, you have to kind of make that decision for yourself. And I would also always tell people, like, if you have five trees on a small lot and you need to open the lot up, you can always take another tree down later. You can never put one back the way that it was to the size that it was when it was mature. You, some trees, you know, that might be old enough that you'll, you'll not live long enough to ever see a tree that big there again. So if you feel you need to open something up, try to take one or two of them out, open up, and start working on that. And until you've maxed out what you can do with that space, don't even think of taking another one out. And try to figure out how can I use these existing trees as my overstory and put in you know, dwarf, semi-dwarfing fruit trees and bushes and shrubs and vines down from there if you can. If you can. Anyway, we've got one more and we'll wrap up for the day. Hi, Jack. Um, I have less of a question and more of a comment that uh, you may want to react to um, or some of your, some of your audience. Um, I've been a long-time listener for about six, six or seven years. Um, and back when I started, I was just a single guy and, and just interested in a lot of these things um, just on my own. Um, since then, uh, I've had a son. And so this past weekend, I finally got around to a task that I've wanted to do for a long time, which is... Um, getting a CB radio and doing kind of a home base station with the CB radio. Um, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience for, for well under $100. Um, my son and I, who's kind of too young now to understand everything, um, but is old enough to get involved and to put everything together, um, just had a great time just putting this thing together and using it. And and I just know that in the future it's going to be something that he'll be able to use and it'll just be there. It'll be something that is interesting and something that's educational. Um, and it just occurred to me, you know, how much things have changed to now. A lot of the things that I do that may be prepper things or survivalist things really have become more of a family kind of thing and an educational thing for my son. Um, and the focus has really changed to that. And so I think just as a side note, it's been a lot easier for my wife, who is not into prepping and who is kind of a happy-go-lucky, um, always being an optimist, never thinking anything could ever go wrong. Um, this kind of thing has really helped her to get on board because the activities that we're doing and, and a lot of these prepper things that a lot of people do, not only are they useful as prepper things, they're so useful um, as family things, and especially if you have a child, um, you know, as, as an activity for a child or an educational activity. Um, so it's just a perspective that has changed with me over time, and I've come to appreciate a lot of these things just for what they provide us without anything going wrong um, and the opportunities that they've given my son and my family. Um, so thank you. Uh, it's always great to hear new ideas on your show, obviously, and and to try them out. And obviously a lot of the ideas that you've given um, have been things that I've been able to do with my son. So thank you for that. Bye. You know, I, I'm really encouraged to hear the winning over of the spouse. And I, I love hearing about the kiddo enjoying the experience, but, and, and that it happens to be, you know, a base station CB radio in the house. I think that's awesome too, because it's an interesting tool to have. And you learn a lot by building a system like that. Um, 
But I, I don't really care that it's a CB. I, I think there's something very, very important in what you've said here and the observations you've had, and I think it gets to the heart of what I've been trying to do here for, for over seven years now. Um, I want America's men to be men. That's That that sums up my, my greatest goal here. I want young men and young girls to be able to look to fathers and uncles and you know the best friend, your dad's best friend and something like that. And I want them to look and I want them to realize that, hey, that's what a man looks like. You know, and I don't just mean it's manly to play with electronics or hammer up drywall or whatever. No, I mean the very fact that you're interacting with a learning level experience with your kid is so important because parents are now parenting with the television set and video games. And that you're doing something. You're not just spending time. You're doing something that's that's educational, that's informative, that's a real usable asset in your life and then later your kids' lives. I, I, I can't put it any more bluntly, but America, this is how you were built and this is what you're missing right now. The reason you have a, a society of people that are so easily manipulated with fear and anger is they have no center. They have no grounding. They have no faith in anything. Even those that say they have faith in God or faith in religion don't really have faith. They have faith that, oh, it'll all be okay someday. God will make it all right. God will bless me or whatever, you know? But when it comes down to faith in their own nation, it's lacking and for a good reason. But it's, it, it's, it's almost like getting water out of a well. If, if, I, if I drill a brand new well... And I stick the best pump in the world on it once it's drilled. And I turn it on and that pump just says, Nothing will come out. I, I think a lot of people don't know that. I mean, that's something that everybody used to know. you know. You, you, but if you do that, nothing will come out. Did you know that? You have to prime it first. You have to put water into the well to get water out of it. You have to put wood into the stove to get heat out of it. And if you want faith in your nation to be restored, you first have to have enough faith in your nation to have faith in yourself to be what we're supposed to be. And men in this nation, we're supposed to be heads of families. I, I don't care if that offends anybody. I really don't. I've spoken up on behalf of every minority and every group in this country that's ever been spoken against so many times. And different families look different ways, and I have nothing against people that, that have modified modern families, that type of thing. I, I get that. But in the end, the majority, I don't care how accepting we become of other people's ways of lives, the majority of people that build families will do so with a father, a mother, and kids. And in that, in that arrangement, men should be the heads of their families. Not because the woman is subservient, because it's your damn responsibility, dude. That's why. That's why. Because, see, leading actually is difficult. Le leading is not like the shit, right? Like where it's at. Like it's, I'll be the leader, and it'll all be easy, and everybody else will take care of my shit, right? That's, con that's what we talked about earlier. That's control. Leading is being a servant to your family. 
He who is the greatest leader is the greatest servant to the people he leads. I don't know if that's a real quote or I just made it up, but it's true. You, to, to lead, you have to love the people you lead. That's why you have no leaders in government. You cannot love, you can, you cannot love the people you're leading when you're in love with your own freaking narcissism. We have a, a group of psychopathic narcissists running our nation. Of course they don't give a shit about you. Of course they can't lead you. But as a man leading your family, you have to love your family unconditionally. A hundred percent. And, and, and that means that you have to make the hard, tough decisions when the time comes. No, we're not doing that. I, I know everybody wants to take a vacation this year, but when we look at our finances, we're not. Mom's upset, kids are upset. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. I, I'm working as hard as I can. I'm doing everything I can, but you know we're gonna we're gonna do this instead this year. We're gonna save some money. We'll have a great vacation next year. But I want to make sure that you guys, if you want to go to college, you can go, or if you want to start a business, I can help you. And the finances of this family are not healthy enough right now. We're not doing this. It's men that are supposed to make decisions like that. It's men that are supposed to make decisions when you've worked on the sixth weekend in a row. You finally tell your boss, you know what? I, I can't work this weekend. I'm sorry. I'm going to spend some time with my son, or my daughter, or both, or my wife. And it is in these, these moments that you spend with your family that you demonstrate for them that you are their leader and that they come first. See, that's, that's why some people get a little bit pissed when you say men should be the leaders of their families, because they think the leader comes first. That's how effed up, and I want to say the real word because it, it, it hits you when, you when you think about that. That's how effed up our country is, guys. The people think leading means you come first. It means you go first. It doesn't mean you come first. I, I think there would be... I, I hear people talk about, you know, we should have all our young men spend two years in the military, and I'm totally against the conscription idea. I think it's totally against liberty, but I do think that there would be some value in it. And I think that the value would be this. When you're a squad leader and you're in the field and it's time for chow, your squad eats first and then you eat. And when you're a platoon sergeant and you have four squad leaders underneath you, your platoon eats, your squad leaders eat, and then you freaking eat, right? And when you are the, 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 the first sergeant, you make sure your men freaking eat, and when all your men have eaten, all your platoon sergeants have eaten, all your squad leaders are eating, then you eat. There's no law, there's no regulation that says that. That's just what good leaders in the military do. And I'll tell you something about the ones that don't. Because once you get to a certain point, you can walk to the front of the line. No one's going to stop you. But you know what your men think of you? Piece of shit. And you guys that are in the military right now, you don't make sure your men eat before you. And I know chow halls are different. I'm talking. You know what I'm talking about if you're in the military. I'm talking about those times when you live for that meal. You don't make sure your men eat first, they think you're a piece of crap. Because leaders, leaders charge first, but they come last. So when I say men are supposed to be leaders in their family, that's what I mean. That means you do first, you act first, you take responsibility first, but you come last. And that's our role as heads of a family. 
And I'm not saying women can't do it because there's all kinds of women all over the world that are put in positions where they have no choice. They have to. I respect the hell out of them for it. And there's times where it's not the guy's fault. You know, he's dead. <laughs> Maybe he died in service for all I know. So, I, I, But the guy that, that could be there, that chooses not to be, it's him I have no respect for. Right? The guy that thinks just because I make my child payment, child care payments, I'm doing, I'm, doing, I'm a good dad, no respect for. And the guy that's still married, comes home from work every night, but doesn't put his family first, I have no respect for. Because you're not a leader. Leaders build CB systems with their kids. Leaders take their kids for walks and teach them about different trees. Leaders are men. That doesn't mean women can't lead. But I'm not talking to women right now. I'm talking to the men that are failing to lead in this country. Because this is where our problem is. Your children are lost and they feel they have no future because you won't lead. All the people that you're angry with that are on the other side of the fence are afraid of you because you won't leave. And that goes both directions. Left and right. Right to left. Doesn't matter. I don't care what side you're on. That's it, it's, a, it's a hard rule. Because you won't leave. And if some of you say, I am leading. Good. This guy's leading. I'm not saying that you, the individual, won't lead. I'm saying America's men are not leading. The majority of our men, especially our younger men, 20 to 40, are behaving like boys. Are behaving like boys. Blessed is the man who knows how to act like a man but play like a boy. Makes a pretty good dad. That's what I just heard. He knows how to play. But knows how to act like a man, knows how to lead like a man. Someone who is, seems to be a fairly new father, because if you started listening to this show and you weren't a dad and now you are, you know, that kid's pretty young and you're probably new to the game and you'll screw a lot of things up. I did. You'll be a much wiser grandfather than you are a father. <laughs> That's another problem we have. Grandparents are not your babysitting service, grandparents are supposed to be an integrated part of your family. I'm amazed that animals have this all worked out. Uh, one of my favorite writers is a guy named Robert Rourke. And in his book, Use Enough Gun, he's writing about the kind of the, 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 the last of the golden era of, of, of African safaris, where people went on hunting safaris for 30 to 60 days, lived in tents, that type of thing, had a whole caravan going with them, and could go out and still take the big five. And you know, it's buffalo and leopard and lion, etc. And he talks about how the buffalo herds work and there'll be these bachelor herds of bulls that separate for a time it'll be an old man you know like a really old buffalo and there'll be a couple younger buffalo but they're still kind of old and then there'll be adolescents and if 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 the if a herd is managed improperly with hunting and too many of the old men and the mature uh, bulls are are taken as, as trophies and and as game animals that the whole hierarchy breaks down and the young buffaloes, and this happens with elephants too, go on rampages and they don't have the guidance, not just of the oldest, but this mid-generation, like they two have to work together. 
This is the same thing that happens with elephants, and it actually happens, and it's in his writings as well, and Peter Kapstick's writings, that this happens with elephants as well. If you take away all the herd bulls, the young adolescent males, when they're going through this developmental stage, they don't know how to process it, they don't know how to deal with it, they don't have someone to, frankly, give them a whack and put them in line. They go off the handles. See, in, in bringing up boys, you have to understand something. Young males rapidly grow, in the totality of time, rapidly grow to where they are physically stronger than the women who have authority over them. And it's a dangerous time. Dangerous things can happen. Bad things can happen at that time. If there's not a stronger male there to say, hey, look, I want you to remember something. You're still a kid. I'll still plant you on your ass if I have to. I love you. I don't want to. But I'll do it. And many of you out there listening to me that are realizing there's this hole and maybe you're not being the best leaders might be thinking to yourself, but I, I didn't have that when I was a kid. You want to be honest with you? You want to be completely honest with you? Tough shit. You have to do it anyway. Because if you don't, who's going to? If you don't, who's going to? If you think that's a weakness in your life, that you didn't have someone do these things for you, And you've got kids, and they're not even your own kids, they're your nephews and nieces and what have you. And you didn't have that strong male influence. <laughs> Don't you think it's going to be worse for them? Because you probably had a little bit of it. Don't you think your best effort is better than no effort? Or your excuses? See, this is what I've been trying to get across to America in all of these things. Gardens, guns communications, preps, storage, financial responsibility. Leaders are responsible for the people they lead. Let me at least say that one more time because it's so crystal clear when you put it that way. Leaders are responsible for the people that they lead. That's what leadership is. See, we've, we, we've ruined leadership by ruining its meaning. We've created a belief that the leader is the guy with the cell phone in his ear, the fancy car that tells everybody what to do. That's a boss. That's a controller. And that guy is worthless unless he has good leaders in his organization. Because these people don't follow him. They follow the leaders that work for him. And if he's good at what he does, he might look like that arrogant asshole, but he's actually a good leader too, and he's leading a group of leaders. But we've been sold this microwave society, this instant gratification society to the point where we now think leadership is easy. Leadership is when you've made it. Leadership is being paid for the rest of your life to sit on your ass. Leadership is striving to be better than you know you can even be. Leadership is when you say, I am going to set a bar for myself to jump over at six feet even though I've never cleared one any higher than five. Because if I keep trying for six feet, I might hit five one someday. That's leadership. And everything that's wrong with America isn't Kim Kardashian's ass, the real one or the guy she's married to. Okay, That's not everything that's wrong with America. The people that believe politically 180 degrees opposite of you are not everything that's wrong with America. Our succession of striving as leaders in our families 
in our communities, in our society. Is what's wrong with America. All these things you look at and say, that's what's wrong with America. That's what's wrong with America. That's what's wrong with America. That's the rash. That's the infection, affected wound. That's the fever. It's the vomiting. It's the symptoms. The root causes our failure, shit, our failure to lead. The good news is, you know how long it takes to become a leader? I didn't say a good one. But to become a leader, that fast. That fast. The day you're willing to stop making excuses about what's wrong and simply do the best you can with what you have and say that every day I'll try a little harder than I did the day before and I will lead. That's it. It's, it's, it's another... See, I am the guy that keeps shoving the, the, the matrix pills down your throat. I, I, I'm not going to give you a pill. I'm going to give you a new pill every month. I'm going to shove a new awakening into you every month. That's my job. That's why I love my job. And and once you take this, another one of those things that once you take that step, you can't ever go back. You'll know how to follow someone when it's necessary, but you'll never go back to being a perpetual follower, waiting for others to go first. Once you've cracked it and said, "This is what leadership is." Once you've given yourself permission to lead, and I am speaking of, uh, you know, I'll say this applies to women too, but I'm speaking to the men of this country today. Stop being children. There was a time to be a boy. There was a time to be a boy. It's over. Now, if you're 16 and you listen to the show, you can be a kid for a while, okay? Don't get me wrong. But you guys know who I'm talking to out there right now. You guys in your 20s and your 30s. Take the childish stuff and use it, the knowledge of it, so you can play with those young kids. But set, a, set an example for them by realizing the time for childhood is past. Time for manhood is here. And real men lead. You lead from the front, but you come last. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Shine is you.